0: Welcome to season two of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this second season, we will be journeying into the spiritual wilds as we explore the theme of wilderness.
1: Joining us around our virtual fireside will be some familiar voices as well as some new guests to help us rediscover the spiritual power of wild things. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison.
0: Bristol Cone Firesides is recorded in the tiny carpet-covered attic of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, who is our partner for this and future seasons. For more info about SUA and the fight to protect Utah's stunning red rock wilderness, visit SUA.org. So... Um, Catherine, you've been on before, but uh, so let's start with let's start with uh, Amber. Let's start with Amber, and then we'll we'll do uh, we'll go to Catherine. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an intro into who you are, and uh, you know, at what point in your life did you realize like the Earth was something that you cared about?
2: Absolutely. Um, hi, thanks for having me. My name is Amber Richardson. I live in Idaho with my parents, and um, I have a podcast that i host called on sovereign wings it's for women who are seeking healing after sexual assault or sexual trauma and it's specifically geared for a mormon audience um i've been involved in women's issues uh in the church um by involved i mean like creating and starting conversations and advocating for about a dozen years now um and this most recent project has been the most um, demanding, but also I think gets at the heart of so much of what's going on in the church in my faith community surrounding women's issues, childhood trauma. So that, in conjunction with my um, profession, I guess, uh, as a storyteller, uh, sort of create the container in which the topic of conversation today is really relevant, uh, the wild woman archetype. As it applies to the second half of your question, um, where did my interest in the earth begin? I've been thinking about this probably more than necessary because I wanted to give a really honest answer. And the most honest answer that I can summon is that I do love the earth, but I love it most um, behind a pane of glass. I really dislike spiders, like Like, I'd hate them. Like, they're my mortal enemy, I think you could say. And there are so many of them outside. So many spiders. And so, I don't know. uh, Like, when I'm having a really good mental health day, the earth feels like a safe, inviting place. When I'm not having a good mental health day, staying inside is the choice for me. So, I do care about the earth, but I just want everyone listening to know, that it is a conceptual kind of care; it is not an experiential kind of care. Thank you for for listening
0: to that. <laughs> that is that is oh a okay. A lot of different relations with the earth here.
3: Yeah, so that's me.
0: Awesome, Catherine.
3: Uh, thanks, Madison. I'm happy to be back on talking to both of you and with Amber as well. Um, I grew up in Salt Lake and I currently live in Salt Lake as well. And I have a background in environmental studies and English and landscape architecture and um, write poetry and other things as well. So I've um, sort of been putting my background in, uh, I guess, studying archetypal images and themes with uh, the land into poetic and um, prose forms, I guess, currently. And um, it's really, it's kind of hilarious because this last week I was bitten by a spider (laughs) and I told Amber the story and she couldn't handle it. And it was pretty crazy. We don't have to go into details, but like, I had like welts all over my body. I was like just about to call, the, like go to the ER. Like it was insane. So I, I feel for Amber. <laughs> Spiders are, yeah, it's, it's very, that whole topic of like in theory versus like the practical, like lived experience of being in the wild. That's a whole, that's a whole thing. Um, but my, I don't know, I was thinking about this. We had a cabin in Big Cottonwood growing up. And I think some of my most like, uh, like sensorial, like my most remembered and like beloved experiences in nature come from being up there. Um, and that was sort of like elementary school age was when I was there the most. And, but I don't remember like one specific moment it's sort of just like an accumulation of of different experiences um but i do remember winning uh my country school's like writing competition like a district competition writing a poem about mother earth there was like a lament (laughs) so i was feeling things strongly at a young age i guess
0: it's funny, I actually had a, a spider story this week too, that I uh, saw a, just a itty bitty little spider above my bed. And uh, I, I'm i the kind of, I don't wanna kill the spiders. I wanna catch them and like move them. And so usually it's like, if I see the spider, I say, like I acknowledge it and I'm like, hi, please don't be here when I come back because if I see you next time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to kill you. But, and so I, instead I moved it to a plant in my room and now it's just hanging out by my plant. And uh, you know, I think it's more comfortable over there anyways. So, uh, so speaking of wild that, you know, that we can have a lot of different experiences with these things and sometimes they bite us. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I think Abby and I wanted to have a conversation about the wild woman archetype that when we were kind of concepting season two, um, this was definitely one that we, we wanted to, uh, to address. And Catherine, when we finished recording our episode with you on season one, I think at the end of that was when we pitched you on. Coming back on and doing the Wild Woman archetype, um, and so it's definitely something that I, I think I'm I'm very excited to have this this conversation. I know Abby is too, um, but before we jump into it, let's just do some definitions. What is an archetype? And Amber or Catherine, either one of you can can jump in.
2: So for many of us, the the word archetype might ring a bell. Uh, From like a high school English class, unless we have listeners who went on to study English language and literature in more depth. Um, So an archetype in that sense, it's a motif that um, is reoccurring. Um, But in our conversation today, I think we're going to be talking about um, the word archetype in a second sense, and that's the Jungian sense. So Sigmund Freud had a protege peer named Carl Jung, a Swiss uh, psychoanalyst. And in his, uh, according to his worldview, an archetype is um, an energy. It's a motif that not only appears in literature, but it lives in the collective unconscious, which is like the, the hive mind that connects humanity um, forward and backward. And so there are these archetypes that appear in world literature um, that first exist within our human imagination. And these include things like the wizard, um, the wise woman, the prince, the princess, the witch, the wild woman. Um, So hopefully that's a good overview of the
1: archetype. I guess... When when we talk about archetypes, especially in theology, um, and you know how they apply to us, um, you know why is an archetype either important or what does it do um, as far as kind of defining us? Um, and and you know when when we're trying to apply that to ourselves, what is the significance of an archetype? You know for our growth or transformation. And either of you are welcome to answer that, I guess.
3: I think there's, um, because it is a image or a symbol that resonates sort of on a universal level, it's um, it's something that has a, a kind of life force, if that if that makes sense. It's something that um, continues to call to us to sort of evaluate where we are mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to sort of help us gauge, um, I guess the quality of our life and the quality of our experiences. And I see that um, really powerfully with the wild woman archetype, as well as with other archetypes like the tree of life. Um, where you're sort of always in conversation or um, it's, a re- it's a relationship. And so you're always sort of trying to figure out where you are in relation to that archetype, which is also, and I think it, it's harder in like our more individualized uh, societies that we're in now, but it's also a gauge of where you are in community, how you're able to sort of, um, relate to human and non-human um spirits and creation
0: yeah sorry i can't hear myself in my headphones like i'm used to which is really psyching me out um I think some of the other definitions that are going to be useful uh, for the rest of this episode are going to be patriarchy and matriarchy. So, can we get just uh, you know a high level definition of patriarchy and matriarchy?
2: So, um, if you break down the word patriarchy, it means rule of the father. Uh, matriarchy would mean rule of the mother. But um, the word patriarchy has a lot of connotations associated with it that uh, matriarchy does not. And I think that's in large part due to various feminist movements and also um, the reality of patriarchy existing in the world. Um, So so the rule of the father um, can be seen in um, not only um, who is generally positioned at the top um, and at the, the gate of any major organization or institution, but it can also be seen in the Principles and values that are um, that that guide um, institutions Um, generally, uh, civilizations and communities that are um, patriarchally oriented also privilege and um, prefer male um, philosophies and values. And uh, yeah, so. Most of human history has been patriarchal, although um, we do know that there have been communities that have existed that have been matriarchal um, or matrifocal, focused on uh, the female perspective and, and that kind of thing. Catherine, do you have anything to add?
3: I think that's great.
0: Excellent. Okay, well, then let's jump into the Wild Woman archetype. Uh, why the Wild Woman archetype? And who is she? Who is the Wild Woman?
3: Do you want me to start, Amber? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes. I mean, her whole book is essentially defining, defining that, women who run with the wolves, and um, but I like the concept that she kind of puts forward at the beginning, that it's sort of the, um, the self before becoming civilized or becoming sort of um, a product of society's um, desires or conditions or rules that you have to sort of shift and bend and, and change for. Um, so there's a sense that there's... Uh, an essence, a true essence in an individual uh, feminine, female self that um, is wild, that sort of is an undercurrent for every woman. And then on top of that, that there's sort of more of the personality or, or selfhood or um, cultural identifiers that, that can be layered to sort of create an individual, um, identity. And I really love the idea that it's also like the wildness um, isn't just about sort of like, there's not this sort of negative connotation that I think we have sometimes of being out of control, or just sort of crazy, but that it's understanding that innate authentic self so that you understand and can form and create healthy boundaries. Um, in every like aspect of your life. That's sort of my baseline, I guess, understanding of it.
2: Yeah, and um, referring back to an earlier question, how can archetypes help us? um, The wild woman archetype is a very redemptive one in my own experience. And I can see that happening in two ways. The first is, there's a pretty famous adage that you can't be what you don't see. Um, And so mining old stories and folklore um, for archetypes can be a really helpful exercise for people, but in the context of this conversation, especially women who've been oppressed and who are dealing with um, trauma and internalized sexism, if you can find an icon or an image or an archetype, Um, of a woman living uh, beyond the bounds of patriarchy. And then if you can slowly uh, resonate with it and find yourself in that archetype, um, working with with an archetype like that can eventually lead to healing and growth. Um, Secondarily, I think um, maybe this would be more of a therapeutic um, perspective. But uh, so Carl Jung argued that, you know, the collective unconscious all of this lives inside of us and so something like the wild woman archetype what is primal in women what is undomesticated that's something that uh, we've been conditioned to cut off from ourselves we've been conditioned to repress it and reject it and that leads to dissonance within within the being so um reintegrating uh the, the aspects of ourselves that Catherine was describing that are represented by the wild woman archetype, I think, can help us relate to the earth in a more sustainable way and can also help us to heal and to feel more at peace within ourselves.
1: That being said, um, do you feel like this wild woman archetype is a a well-known one? I mean, this is kind of a, a question I have, you know, that I think there are a lot of women, at least that I interact with pretty frequently, that aren't aware of this archetype. And so I'm just curious, like, do you feel... I don't know, what, what's the presence or acceptance of this archetype when you've discussed it with other women or, um, you know, do you feel like other women that you've interacted with um, upon first hearing about it have really resonated with this? It's something that I really resonate with, but uh, I am curious kind of, you know, what the reception has been in your circles and, and how people kind of feel about this, especially within the church.
2: Catherine, I can start us out on that one. Yeah, okay. So Catherine mentioned a book called um, Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. This book is kind of the pioneering work on this archetype. Clarissa is uh, Hungarian and Latina, and she's a Jungian analyst. Um, And within this uh, work, she weaves together um, world World folklore and makes the case uh, for the archetype. So, prior to the publication of this book, um, this archetype was um, fairly fragmented and and not really um, and not articulated. So, recently, this book I think was published like 20 years ago or more. But recently, it's been making something of a comeback. So, in my experience, if you haven't read this book, you probably aren't familiar with the archetype. And I think that's because um, the wild woman was very much disenfranchised and oppressed. And so generally, um, when people think of wildness and femininity, um, they think about uh, something that is bad, something that is not good, that is not acceptable. Um, and I would say within the church, that's generally the um, the first response that I run into. And yeah, like you, Abby, um, it isn't something that's on people's radars. That's that's my observation too.
3: Yeah, I this book has been made extremely popular. I think it was Emma Watson who had it on like her book club, and so I mean it's it's sold millions and millions of copies, and um, I think it's definitely well known among women who are sort of seeking any sort of like feminist or in that path of feminist awakening or seeking to like, um, to understand themselves better or following certain people on Instagram. Like it's, it's out there. It's pretty popular. Um, within Mormonism, I'm less sure. I think there are definitely groups of women who like people who follow, follow groups like womb sisters or, um, other sort of groups that do. But I, I do think like Amber said that it is uh, threatening, <laughs> can potentially threatening um, for women in the church because it essentially asks them to um, do kind of a 180 away from what uh, culturally at least we've been told we should be as women. And that can be sort of uh, daunting um, to do that, especially like I think if you have like a group of, of women sort of exploring things together, perhaps it's less daunting, but um, yeah, I don't think it's something particularly well
1: embraced. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, I think in some ways, it, it may be as changing. Um, I, I feel that way, you know, at least in my own circle, but then other times I feel like, that still, or or still feels somewhat, um, there's a a phrase she uses in her book. I think she says like overly domesticated. Um, And I think sometimes that's how it feels in the church um, at times to feel like, you know, you're sequestered into one um, specific archetype in the church even. Um, And so, like you said, Catherine, kind of shifting that mindset 180 degrees, um, and, and you know, digging deep within yourself, like she suggests, um, to, to find these less domesticated parts of our, our self um, really does sometimes seem like a contrarian belief within the church. So um, I'm interested, you know, obviously, and, and as we discuss this, how, um, you know, you see the marriage of the two um, as being cohesive. Obviously, it's not we're not taught that kind of to the contrary, but but sometimes I can really feel that way within the culture of the church. And so um, I think that will be a good thing to, mm-hmm. to touch on and kind of um, hammer out within this this discussion as well.
3: Yeah. <clears throat> One of my favorite parts of her book actually is at the very beginning where, I mean, she's sort of, Begins to frame the wild woman archetype, but then she begins by listing sort of the symptoms of a disrupt a disrupted relationship with that wildish portion of the psyche, and that was extremely effective for me because I could see before I could see what it was, I needed to see sort of the lack, like what like the ramifications or the consequences. Uh, and and understand that those things that I had felt throughout my life as a woman were connected to the um, my sort of severance from from the wildish woman archetype. Um, so I'm gonna read a few of those if that's okay because I think it helps us sort of, and I think it's really uh, so important as LDS women that we Know the root of these feelings that we experience. So she begins by saying, um, and these are all descriptions that she sort of curated or just wrote down a, a collection of things from women that she worked with. So these are you know, women's words describing their own feelings about this um, this uh, disconnect. So feeling extraordinarily dry, fatigued, frail, depressed, confused, gagged, muzzled, unaroused, feeling frightened, halt or weak, without inspiration, without animation, without soulfulness, without meaning, shame bearing, chronically fuming, volatile, stuck, uncreative, compressed, crazed, feeling powerless, chronically doubtful, shaky, blocked, Unable to follow through, giving one's creative life over to others, life sapping choices in mates, work or friends, suffering to live outside one's own cycles, unprotective of, overprotective of self, inert, uncertain, faltering, um, inability to pace oneself or to set set limits, and there's a there's a lot more, but I think um, most women can resonate if we're being honest on some level with a lot of those.
0: And th- those were qualities of disconnection from the wild woman archetype, right? Okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> I think that helps sort of put into the frame that like, I think the, the term wild, like I said before, can be a bit like, well, what is this? It
0: can be a pejorative. Um,
3: yeah, it can be a pejorative. It can also be like, well, I don't really resonate with that. Like I don't feel like wild. I don't feel like this, whatever. but but beginning to describe it as well, that this is what actually helps you feel centered and grounded and and uh, known to yourself, like being able to tap into um, that that deep essence that no religion or culture or or other human can give you like being disconnected from that is the reason why everything else around you can feel so stifling or difficult.
1: Yeah. And I I love that clarification that you gave about, you know, the word wild, because I kind of felt that way when I first approached this, this topic, you know, and I don't, I don't feel wild. I think I told you before we kind of started the call that I was a bit of an introvert. And so to me, wild sometimes, um, kind of alludes to the idea of being extroverted or or you know maybe being a bit um outlandish but it it's not that way it it's very much like you said you know reattaching yourself and recentering yourself in in the kind of like strength of womanhood um and and being female so i really yeah it really resonated with me after I kind of got over the hurdle of. Okay, what does wild actually mean in this context? What is she saying? How does she talk about it? So, yeah, I love that clarification. Thank you.
0: Amber, any thoughts?
2: Um Well, my mind was my mind was wandering and I was thinking about how um during the second wave of feminism, there were quite a, a, a few women who were um, criticizing the gendering of the earth as female, as mother. And interestingly, uh, oftentimes the crux of that criticism was that um, they felt like it was confining for women, that it uh, pigeonholed them into a role of like being a nurturer or like a goddess of the spring time, um, not a water, a spring of water. Um, And one of the facets of the wild woman as Clarissa Pinkola Estes presents her is that she is um, not only cyclical, but uh, chaotic. Like it's not just the goddess of the spring time and um, a woman of flowers and blossoms and fragrances. It's a woman of death and mud and volcanoes and earthquakes and tidal waves and lightning bolts. Um, and I think that that woman, um, that, that kind of wild is specifically uh, what we are bred to feel such contempt for or bred to feel so uncomfortable around because there's something about her that can't be um, controlled. There's something about her that's unpredictable, that's um, fearful in a... In a very sacred way, I think, um, and yeah. So on the other side of that conversation, I guess there might be um, a, a different kind of uh, potential discomfort with connecting woman to earth, and that's how I answer it. Um, that um, that um, that sort of unpredictability or or chaoticness. Um, it's it's in our bodies it's in the act of birth it's um and i I think that there's something really powerful about that so in my own journey i've kind of come full circle for quite a long time i was in that camp of um disapproving the connection between woman and earth and i've changed my mind in a pretty radical way
0: Uh, I definitely, I, I think uh, you hit on something really, uh, really powerful is that the, the wild woman archetype is, and I I hope to, I want, I think we're going to talk about it later on in the, in the episode, but the wild woman archetype embodies like embodies beauty, embodies terror and embodies life, embodies death beauty and ugliness, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot encapsulated in the wild woman archetype. Um, but I think what might be helpful right now is just like you said, Amber, um, to kind of go through mythology and like mine it for the archetypes. Um, can we, can we like pitch out or discuss what are some mythological figures so that we can actually see with our eyes and like in media and in literature and stuff that, uh, that we can see the wild woman archetype? So let's let's throw out some that we're familiar with.
2: Uh, Artemis, the goddess of the hunt from Greek mythology, is maybe the best um, or or the most accessible. Um, she is bomb. I'm actually in my childhood bedroom, and the wall behind me. Um, when I was a little girl, there's nothing there for you to see now. That's relevant to this conversation. But when I was a little girl, I went to the library and I used a photocopier and I Xeroxed an illustration of Artemis and I had it hanging there for like 10 years. Um, So yes, I'm a big fan. Um, Other stories, I mean, um, I, I kind of consider like modern day film a mythology in and of itself, so. There's a beautiful film that was produced by an Irish animation house a few years ago called Wolf Walkers. Yes. Apple TV. So good. So the protagonist, one of the protagonists in that film, her name's Maeve. She's a little wolf girl. That is the wild woman. That film is so good. (laughs) Um, Baba Yaga might be another one. Um, Most of us Westerners are familiar with like a, a horror story about Baba Yaga. Um, But if you strip back the conditioning, she's this death goddess, this life death goddess that's really lovely. Um, There's a mythological figure out of Norway that I really love called the Holdra. In um, whatever the ancient Scandinavian tongue was that this character was created, Holdra means um, hidden. And like Baba Yaga, uh, the Holdra is a character who's been kind of defamed and disenfranchised but at the heart of the folklore um, is something really fascinating. She's, a, she's a, an animal woman that lives in the mountains. She usually has a foxtail or a cow tail, and she calls people into the mountains. And so over um, several hundred years, the story turned into a cautionary tale. The Holdra is a seductress who specifically calls men into the mountains so that she can murder them. But um, on a symbolic level, like, yeah, that's the wild woman. She calls us into her, into her domain so that we can experience a death of self and uh, a rebirth. So those are some of my favorites off the top of my head. Anybody have any more that they want to add to the pot?
3: Those are all really great.
2: Or did I take them all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I did.
0: So my favorite is princess Mononoke. I don't know if you guys have, are familiar with the Ghibli studio Ghibli films, but princess Mononoke is the, uh, the wolf princess. She was raised by her, her parents, um, uh, offered her a sacrifice to the wolf goddess of the, of the forest. And she was raised by these wolves and, uh, the, the movie princess Mononoke by Hayao Miyazaki is probably one of his greatest works. Um, but. Mononoke, like her character itself is uh, a really powerful representation, I think, of the wild woman archetype.
2: Yeah, that's a great one. Um, Merida in Brave, the Scottish lass with the bow and arrow. Um, What about the Selkie, which is a Celtic archetype? It's a woman who turns into a seal. Um,
0: I almost want to say Moana a little bit from the Disney's, Disney's film, she's kind of in there. I know she's a little bit more of an ocean goddess kind of uh, archetype, but I think she's at least a, in terms of, or maybe the, uh, who's the, the, the lava woman at the end who is actually the, the island.
2: to
0: uh, Yeah, the, I, think, I think that representation very much to me kind of captures that duality of the wild woman.
2: Are any of you familiar with the Morrigan? She's a, a Celtic goddess. Um, so maybe you've seen that symbol, the like the Celtic goddess triptych, maiden mother crone. Mm-hmm. A lot of people trace that back to the Morgan. She was, she had these three aspects: the the Bive and uh Maka, maiden Mother Crone. But they were they were death goddesses and they were warrior goddesses and they were associated with the seasons. Um, there's a story about Maka that is just chef's kiss. She, um, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but somehow she gets pregnant and maybe it was like rape. Maybe she didn't want to be pregnant or something. And so, or maybe she wasn't being received with empathy or given, given the resources that she needs. I can't remember, but either way, um, she ends up in this village full of men who have rejected her. And she curses them all um, to feel the pains of labor So they all collapse and experience the pains of labor, and then she wins a foot race while she's while she's birthing a baby. It's just good stuff, yeah. So that's that's the Morgan, Um, fun one to research if anyone wants to go do that later.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Those are all really good.
0: Okay, well, now that we've kind of have an idea in our minds of at least the visual or mythological representations of the Wild Woman, let's like dive in um, that, uh, you know, when I was outlining this episode and, you know, so I grew up with sisters, I grew up in a very matriarchal kind of family with powerful, powerful women in, you know, my grandpa, my grandmas, my aunts, and my sisters and my mom, all very powerful women. And so I have a lot of holy envy for kind of the Wild Woman archetype. Um, for the kind of the resonant embodied symbolism that, you know, that, that women embody that uh, kind of mish- matches or mirrors the, the cycles that we see in nature. Um, I sense, though, that the weight of being a symbol um, can be overbearing. Catherine, in your, in your poem, uh, in the, the, the book Tree, Tree at the Center, you have a poem as a mother and you write, I have never desired to be a symbol. I never asked to be the center. Can you speak to the empowering aspects of the wild woman archetype and the tension in the weight of that symbolism?
3: Yeah, I. <clears throat> that's a great question that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, there's sort of, I think, and it, it's different for every woman. I can just speak to my own experience um, that becoming a mother sort of brought front and just right, you know, full in front of me, like this whole other dimension of of being a woman that um, was very unexpected. I, I think there's a lot about being in a patriarchal society that um, sort of mutes, like there's a, there's a lack of understanding and acknowledgement and sort of recognition within the self as a woman, but also um, a lack of sort of conversation about, the more psychological, emotional, spiritual elements of becoming a mother, like the very basic understanding that I received about things was very physical, sort of like these are the physical changes that are coming. Um, This is what you can expect, X, Y, Z. And it wasn't even from my own mother. It was sort of like outsourced, right? Like all of this preparation and when it came down to actually being pregnant and being embodied in that way in such a different, um, an incredibly different way, I, I had to just really go inside and try to connect to the divine through that new experience and understand what does this mean? Like, how does this add to my own understanding of like life? and like embodied mortal life but also um how women connect the divine and expanding my my concept of what is divine and having all of this come on I mean my, it was my choice to have a child but it wasn't necessarily my choice to like all of a sudden become this figure that was there was an archetype that was carrying the symbology of um, the world itself as well as woman as women women like being a woman, um, but also a divine symbolism of Christ as someone who reconciles life and death of a divine mother, someone who would lead the way the, for her children to sort of experience a mortal existence and to be connected. I felt for the first time like I was connected to generations past and generations coming and the earth and heaven in ways that I could never have expected. And... Um, it's a weight. It's definitely a weight. It's something that um, is extremely heavy and difficult and sometimes very sorrowful because of the state of our world, right? It's not like I'm bringing children into a world that's um, rejoicing and full of light and truth and goodness. I'm bringing children into a world that um, where people hate themselves and they hate each other. And there's uh, senseless violence and there's uh, a very real agenda to destroy the earth and so um, I can't disconnect that agenda from discon- from destroying the earth from an agenda to destroy me and that's you know you can say that sort of anyone can feel that right you can feel like well we're destroying the earth we have this sort of self-loathing because we, we literally are killing the thing that sustains us. Anyone can feel that and sense that, but as a woman being the person who, who sort of represents life, the life, death, life, power and brings souls into the world. It's a whole nother dimension. It's a whole nother, um, like level and, uh, experience of that sort of disregard for life so it's i i I mean i i don't say this lightly i feel like it's the closest i come to feeling any anything like what the savior could have felt as a mortal on this earth that um like that tension between um the divine and the profane, love and hatred, sort of commingling and living within one body. And um, you know, I know that that everyone can feel that, but being able to bring children spirits to this realm, it's a it's a very different um, experience, and it's one that. It's it's really hard to even sort of try to put into words because it's it's beyond it's just beyond language. Um, So I think I think the thing that and this might not necessarily flow with the rest of the conversation you're wanting to have, but I think one of the most uh, difficult things for me just sort of in a, a larger framework to think about is how there are so many women who can sort of come to this crux, right? Of like becoming a mother, having children. Um, it's sort of like this moment, this potential moment, this sort of very significant, almost quintessential moment of for a woman to sort of finally wake up to her wild woman self, right? It's like the moment where your body is your mind like your body takes over you have to be in every moment especially going into labor have actually delivering the child all of that that happens um where we've outsourced that most precious moment to patriarchy in the way that we uh have disengaged from what's really happening on a spiritual and psychological level and that's one of the things that's uh, so difficult for me, just like conceptually that um, it, I guess it's a big sign for me, right? Like it's a big red flag that patriarchy is so strong and so damaging that so women, of course, we all can, there's countless opportunities for every woman to sort of re-engage with that self and find it again. And um you know, I, I feel hope for that. Like, I feel like every woman has many moments in her life where that can happen, but it's such an incredibly precious and, um, sacred and holy time that it's, it's very discouraging for me sometimes to think about how that's not, that's not the experience of most women when they become a mother, um, so kind of on a tangent there, but I, it's, it's very connected to me in terms of, like, embracing the wild woman and embracing the symbology of that larger, um, I guess, power that women have is really, it's just very concentrated and, and uh, sharp, I guess, in that moment of becoming a mother
2: Thank you. Um, You have a way with words, Catherine. Anyone who listens to you or reads your writing knows that. But I think one of the other gifts that you bring to conversations like these is that you're able to traverse into some really tender, um, deep sorrow in a way that feels um, manageable and relatable. And so I just want to thank you for opening that door for us and for our listeners. I am not a mother, um, but I I think the point that you raise is really important. Of all of the seasons and moments in a woman's life, um, pregnancy, gestation and birth and delivery are some of the moments where um, this connection between woman and wild are most clear. And as you said, very articulately already, Uh, we can also see um, illustrated for us in that moment, how patriarchy has uh, cut us off from our instincts and that's something worth grieving. Um, For for me, as someone who has not experienced motherhood and is uh, honestly quite hesitant (laughs) about that season of life, um, I think that There are certain archetypes associated with womanhood within the culture of our shared faith um, that uh, perhaps, it seems like uh, we're being encouraged towards embodying like the nurturer, right? So so you embody the nurturer and maybe at first you're lauded, you receive some kind of social congratulations and acceptance, but then the further you get down that path, the more you realize how completely unsupported you actually are. Um, and the culture doesn't, doesn't want to talk about the shadow side. It doesn't want to talk about the hard parts. Um, it also isn't equipped to prepare you for the spiritual and psychological changes that accompany, um, becoming a nurturer. But, um, you know, they can, the culture can, can continue living in a, in a fantasy land, uh, which maybe doesn't sound very kind, but, um, if you divorce any experience from its shadow side or its underside, then you are living in a fantasy. So, um, yeah, so, so I can see that being an experience for many women. But for me, I think I, um, the wild woman is a disenfranchised archetype. So if you want to step into it and claim it, I, I think generally speaking, the, the biggest consequence will be alienation and rejection. And I feel like that's, that's been my experience. Um, so I've, I've done a lot of work around claiming my anger and um, specifically within the context of sexual abuse, right? Like, man, it's so important to claim your anger about that <laughs> because without your anger, you're, you've cut off a, an important instinct for identifying predators and um, uh, compromising situations and being able to you know, fight and uh, remove yourself from, from danger. Uh, so yeah, I've done a lot around reclaiming my anger. And, uh, that's, that's unwelcome. (laughs) That's not, that, that doesn't make people feel safe. It, it's disruptive and yeah. So that's an unfortunate reality of this, um, personal development. Um, and as Catherine was describing, um, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe feeling victimized in some way by motherhood, that her mother wasn't the one to prepare her. And most of the preparation involved the medical or physical um, aspects of that transformation. I felt that same thing as, as someone trying to step into my power. Um, There, there are very few roadmaps. There are very few guides. And um, you know, so I just, you have to kind of learn everything as you go. And so it's easy to feel victimized by that, I think, when you're you know, you're know, going for it and you're going to reclaim your anger and you are thinking, wow, this is such good work. I'm going to be a healthier person now. I'm going to be more whole. And then you express your anger in an appropriate setting and you get alienated or rejected. Um, yeah, I've felt very victimized by that. Um, maybe I wouldn't have if I'd had a guide, who could have told me to prepare for this um, but uh, I didn't. So even though it's a totally normal and um, reasonable thing to have happen within the context of patriarchy, because I didn't know about it, I think I felt blindsided and, and that, was, that was really painful. I think we'd all prefer to just be supported and uh, hopefully there's a group of us headed that direction.
0: Yeah, no, there's a, you said something that really resonated with me, um, in there that I want to sit with for a second that you said that embodying the wild woman archetype, if you choose to step into that, be prepared for alienation, (laughs) um, that I think that might be the case for embodying wildness on any level, you know, whether it's men, women, like children, adults, like it doesn't matter if you embody wildness, prepare for alienation. Um, because There's something about the, especially in like the Western American psyche that abhors wildness, whether it's our war against wolves or against, you know, against actual wilderness lands in the, in the Western United States that we, we hate wildness on some level. And, you know, I felt that even myself that, you know, I, I feel like I embody a certain degree of wild, a wild version of Mormonism, you know, where I have definitely stepped into my, you know, my own. And I'm, I am kind of alienated. There's not a lot of people in my ward that can, that I can, you know, meet me on the same level. And so I definitely do feel kind of an alienation and an aloneness while at the same time that wildness is very like empowering and very enlivening. So I'm not saying that it's like this super dark, terrible thing that no one should ever do, but because it it is very life-giving, it's very sustaining, it's very fulfilling to step into wildness. But I think we need to honor the fact that there certainly is an alienation that goes along with it.
3: Yeah, and I think you would even take that further to um, like the idea of a prophet or a prophetess that, um, and as, you know, Christ is sort of our example of, in my mind, a balanced, um, embodied form of like the masculine and feminine harmonized, that he was the, like he was the one to sort of Step into his wildness in a way that threatened everyone, like almost everyone. <laughs> you know, like many of his own apostles, and um, made enemies of just about everyone he encountered. So, um, and you know, I I think that's something that Amber and I, at least, have discussed recently. Is like this path ultimately leads to. Um, like prophecy like that's you know like we're not and i and i don't want to put words in your mouth either (laughs) amber but i think that the the like as we go down this path we're realizing that you know the scriptures about your um children will prophesy etc etc like this idea that like if we are to sort of stay on the path that um that will get us from a telestial state onward. Um, It will involve this sort of removal from philosophies and ideas and uh, programming, I wanna say, that keeps us locked into ways of being and thinking and experiencing the world that limit our capacity to see clearly the way things are and there's that tension i think between what is wild and what is tame in the sense that like there's a lot of artifice there's a lot a lot of like amber said the removal of the shadows um, and bringing forth like the idea that Mortality is a battle, in the sense that you have to you have to move through those shadow lands. You have to be awake. You have to be aware of what's going on, or you're not moving. You're not really alive. You're not really experiencing what's happening, like really happening in this world. Um, there, as we've seen countless times, you know, like there's groups of people. We just don't want to deal with that they don't want the reality they don't want to hear what the prophet has to say they don't want to hear what's like a true they don't want to see a true reflection of, of who they are and what they're representing and the programming the ideas that they've accepted to be real and how they will literally crumble like they they would rather hold tight to things that um will corrode and um break and fail and so the wild woman or the wild man like that wild self or wherever you identify right like we're talking about a very gendered um sort of experience here but you know i also believe that there's a there's a spectrum of of wildness um that it is ultimately sort of um a removal from from this state and from this sort of world as we've constructed it. And so there will be that tension. There will be that, um, yeah, just everything you've said. <laughs> It'll be difficult.
1: I love that discussion of of Christ as being like kind of the ultimate embodiment of the wild woman, if we can say that, uh, in the sense that he, he really did make people uncomfortable. I think at least like, this is something I gleaned from the most recent, um, uh, conference, general conference, but just that idea of kind of pushing one outside of their comfort zones. Um, and that like, that's kind of the true nature of Christ was that his gospel was to, to love everyone. Right. Um, and that that requires sometimes being uncomfortable, uh, in, in the system that's been set up or or that we've set up for ourselves, right um i think of the good samaritan you know he wasn't stopping to help a neighbor with whom uh he knew very well or looked exactly like him spoke exactly like him right it was um truly you know what what should for all intents and purposes be considered his enemy right um, and I think that's something that I keep thinking about uh, as you're talking is that you know this this wild woman archetype is pushing a boundary um, and it's asking us to become comfortable with things that like you've said, you know, I don't want to be redundant, but that that are uncomfortable, things that are uncomfortable for us um as we move forward, I keep thinking of. Um, Is it Maxine Hanks, who, uh, you know, published, um, you know, feminist kind of uh, theology from the church um, and then uh, was excommunicated and then later rejoined in 2012. um, And that she talked about that as being a very healing experience for her to be rebaptized, but that it was something she had to come back on her own and do for herself um, and I think that's, again, just kind of what the wild woman archetype is, is pushing us to do is to really be um, cognizant of uh, healing, like we've said already, but also like Christ's theology of, of really loving everyone, including ourselves, and also pushing beyond kind of the, the construct or the confines of what we've already set up for ourselves. Um, you know, within a patriarchal society, but just in society in general, that, that that's going to be required of us. Um, and it's at the root of our, of our doctrine.
3: Yeah, that's great. And, the, and, you know, the push isn't necessarily going to come from the church. Like we hear these great talks, right? And this idea of like, get out of your comfort zone, but like, this has to be self-directed. And I think that's yeah. where maybe we have hang-ups is that, you know, like a lot of active members want to feel like they're doing the right thing and they're in line with the Brethren and um, they're not going outside of what is mainstream. Uh, I mean, we've, we've heard as much, right, that follow the Brethren, like they're not going to lead you astray. Um, mm-hmm. And I have I have a lot of difficulty with that on many for many reasons but mostly that it doesn't teach us to self-actualize and to take responsibility to have our inner self that wild self be the compass um because first I mean we do hear that as well right so there's conflicting messages right like you need to be seeking Christ etc etc but um I would love it if it was a much more direct message of you are you're responsible and accountable to yourself first and foremost in god and um they're there for general counsel right they're there for support um but they're they're not going to be next to you when you meet christ like making excuses for you or whatever right like it's um that direct connection is at the heart of what Uh, a wild woman i think embodies and encompasses and and yearns for and i think that's also why she's persecuted that you know just like with christ like that message of the kingdom is in you is not acceptable to the world to patriarchy or to any yeah it's just not
2: Before we move on, I just wanted to chime in and say that my favorite description I've ever read of Christ comes from uh, St. Teresa of Avila. She described him as a wild, brokenhearted prince of love. And I've gone through several different faith crises in my young life, and no doubt there will be more to come, but that particular description resonates for me in a really deep and personal way.